Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Welcome, everyone, to episode 27 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a Rust Belt recruiting production. I am your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Dan Malthrop, CEO of the City Club of Cleveland. Dan, welcome to the podcast, man. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Paul. Appreciate it. Um, All right, so let's jump in. Um, So you started your schooling on the East Coast. I'm an East Coast guy. Um, You went to the Mm -hmm. prestigious Petty School in New Jersey. It's so funny that you call it the prestigious Petty School because it wasn't when I went there. And look at (laughs) look at how it changed. You know, look at how it changed. So it's so actually that's actually a good even starting point. So yeah, talk to us about that. What was it when you went, and what what caused the transformation? So. well, it was all me. I mean, my presence really. <laughs> no, um, shortly after, uh, well, when I went there, it was, and I graduated in 1991. So I started there kind of mid, late 80s, 1987 as an eighth grader. And um, the, I'll tell you a quick story that will demonstrate what kind of a place it was. There was like the first dance that weekend, the, the weekend that, um, wasn't like homecoming or whatever, but it was like the first weekend of, of school in September. And somebody tried to, um, was uh, tripping on either LSD or PCP or something and tried to jump out of a dorm room window and ambulances come up and all of that. And that sort of thing wasn't that uncommon there, right? So that's like, it was, Petty was at the time, uh, not a top tier school, I think even, you know, like the folks who are there now and who were there then would say, yes, it was not a top tier school. And, um, but you could still get a great education there. And I was a day student and I went there to get, um, to, to get a great education. I got to do like honors, yada, yada stuff and all of that. And I was editor of the paper and really, I loved my time at Petty. But shortly after I graduated, I graduated in 91 and I think it was 1993, or so when Walter Annenberg dropped a hundred million dollar endowment gift on the Petty School. And that was the largest gift ever given to an independent school in the United States of America at the time. And it's still probably one of the largest. What prompted that? Walter Annenberg was a graduate. He was an alum. I I sure hope so. And he was absurdly wealthy. And, um, and he, you know, he was wealthy and, and uh, an entrepreneurial, a very successful entrepreneur, even when he was at Petty. When he left Petty, his graduation gift to the school was a track. Not I know. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, and he had, you know, he was, uh, I mean, he was a great philanthropist. And, um, and that school meant a great deal to him. And it was it was a transformative gift. People talk about transformative gifts all the time. This was a truly transformative gift that took Petty from where it was to being uh, to being prestigious, as you've said, to being one of the top tier schools in the Northeast, if not the nation, able to diversify its student body and offer um, because it was a very white place when I went there. And it's still predominantly white, I believe, but um, but is more diverse now. Able to offer a lot of scholarships, a lot of merit-based academic scholarships, and and need-based scholarships, um, you know, for students wherever they may be. So it's gotten more international. It's gotten much more diverse in every way, and um, and the academic rigor has has really gone, you know, through the roof. Well, with a hundred so, million dollars, especially in '93, you can do a lot. And you, you should do a lot. Awesome. So, okay. So I took a look, obviously did some research on you and your career and your background. And mm-hmm. I came kind of across a theme. Um, and one of the themes around you and your background is that you like to create conversations, you know, whether it be you are a podcast host, um, you were the founder of the civic commons. Now, obviously your work with the city club of Cleveland mm-hmm. um, in a time where I think conversation over the last 18 months um, 
has happened and has needed to happen, but not everybody likes to have those conversations. And mm-hmm. I'm not even necessarily referencing the tough ones or the harder ones, but mm-hmm. just in general, what motivates you to create conversations around important issues? I'm glad you identified a theme because to me, my career feels totally ad hoc and haphazard. Um, but I, but I would say that you're right. When I look back, there's like, there's a thread, there's that conversational, that thread of conversation and, um, and dialogue. And a lot of it, I think like goes back to high school when I was, um, when I was doing journal, you know, scholastic journalism, interviewing people, and I got really into oral histories and things like that. And, um, and I feel that, I mean, at its heart, what we're doing right now, this conversation, I form words, you, you ask questions, I answer them, I ask you questions, you answer them. This whole thing that we're doing of exchanging ideas and sharing our own narratives, it's fundamentally about like, what it means to be human, right? To connect. E.M. Forster in his, um, in his book, A Passage to India, the, the, epigra- the, the epigram, Is short it says only connect and like that's what it means to be human is just to connect with people mm-hmm. and um and also i believe that like we can't when we make connections when we are able to understand one another we can find empathy for one another and we can find solution we can find common ground and that's those are the the ingredients to the solutions for the problems that vex us yeah so that's such a good point. I love that. Only connect. I think most of the time, if not all, I, I never want to speak in, in, uh, you know, a hundred percent assumptions, but mm-hmm. most of the time when someone sees something and they don't understand it or they fear it or mm-hmm. uh, whatever, it's just from lack of exposure. So those kind of go hand in hand of just connect, only connect. And if you yeah. can't, if you don't have that opportunity, well, then you don't understand it. And then lack right. of understanding usually leads to fear or yeah. them versus us. And we're the right, mm-hmm. they're the wrong. And it's, ju- it's just purely lack of exposure. So I, I love that mm-hmm. concept, just kind of only yeah. time. Yeah, 100%. The, um, and, you know, I used to be a school teacher. I taught high school English. And before that, I taught in a county jail in San Francisco. And um, and my because I was teaching English and literature and when I was in the county working in the county jail I would work work with students usually using literature short stories or plays or things like that that would allow us to talk about ideas and allow us to connect with one another I mean I also taught like GED prep but the real fun stuff was when like we were sitting around taking roles and and reading you know and and reading a play or reading a short story and talking about what it means and and even then, like it was essentially, you know, there was a lot of com- a lot of my teaching was very Socratic in nature, right? Based on like questions and answers and conversation and discussion and and really exploring ideas and connecting the ideas in a piece of work to somebody's life, to an in- the individual student's life and, and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, that's the why that that's why that's important. And, um, and it happens to be what I've done a lot in my life. So with your background in creating conversation, it, it makes sense that you started freelance writing over mm-hmm. 15 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about what made you start writing, because clearly, you know, there are people who are great oral communicators, horrible writers, vice mm-hmm. versa, and then people that can do both. So tell us one, what motivated you to start writing and then two, some of your work, because it, it's kind of expansive. So thanks. Um, I, I always, I always enjoyed writing. And when I got into teaching, um, the thing that was still tugging at me was this desire to practice journalism. And so it was, um, it was around the year that I turned 30 that I, you know, shifted careers, stopped teaching and, um, and went to graduate school for journalism. And, um, and that was, you know, what I wanted to do then, what I thought I wanted to do, I mean, it's sort of funny, you know, you have desires and then like life chooses certain, you, you can, you make choices, but also, you know, you say yes or no to what, to these opportunities that come up. 
Um, and so I was, you know, I got into the writing that I've done through, you know, through journalism and, and um, doing, you know, standard reporting uh, for daily, for daily newspapers. And, and then, but then also um, while I was in grad school, I co-authored a, a book with Nineveh Caligari and Dave Eggers about the experience of teachers in America. And that book did a couple of different things. It was largely, it was, it, um, it was a, a lot of oral histories with teachers. So just spending time with teachers, talking to them about their lives and listening to their stories and how they see the work they do, the importance of the work they do. And, um, and it's, you know, and it, what the impact that they believe it's having. I wanna find, I don't see the book up here. It's around somewhere. Oh yeah, here it is. This book right here. Um, do you know this book? No, working by I, Studs Terkel. I do not. Um, Studs Terkel was one of the uh, he was one of the greatest journalists of the 20th century. And this book, working, people talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, and you can see like I got like all these notes in it and stuff. There's it's a fantastic book and probably one of the most in terms of books that have influenced me definitely one of the books that has influenced me the most he and and that informed how we did that piece we, it was a lot of oral histories and then it was reported pieces about how uh, certain school districts or schools were changing the way that they pay teachers in order to shift the work and shift the job and shift how how teachers feel teachers themselves feel about it how they feel valued but also when you shift how people are compensated you change the the kinds of people who choose that profession Yep. As we're seeing right now with like the great resignation and um, and the ways in which the world of work is being remade. So, um, yeah, so we so we worked on that book together and collaborating with a writer like Dave Eggers is a, like just an incredible experience. I mean, he I don't know if you if you've read any of his books at all, but he is um, he's just a, he's a gifted writer. And he is one of those people, he's a rare kind of writer in that he writes as fluidly in fiction as he does in nonfiction. Hmm. And he's a great listener and a great reporter and, um, and a great thinker. And um, yeah, he's just like, it was really, uh, that was a, a formative moment for me um, to learn how to write along, you know, with, with him as a mentor. And, and it, must, it must just be a, it always feels like a, such a daunting task though. Like true. Like I always want to go to step one, like, okay, you got past the point of, I want to write a book. You're motivated yeah. to do it. You're going to do it. Let's say you even meet David, you meet someone you're going to collaborate with. Like what is step one? Oh, you just, you, you make a plan. Step one was to like, we kind of mapped out. I think the first thing we did was like map out a table of contents. What do we yeah, think? The chapters and like, do? what do you, okay. Yeah. Got it. And then you kind of, I mean, there's a lot of ways that people go about it, but I think what we did was we mapped out a table of contents and thought like, okay, here are like the, the different issues we'd want to touch on different ways we'd want to get at it. And then, um, and then you just start chipping away at it. It's like, you know, Annie Lamont, the writer has that book bird by bird. Like that's how you write things. You just, you just got to write it bird by bird, like one bird at a time. She had a book. It was, goes back to like some report she had to write about birds as a child. And her father was like, just, or mother was just said, well, just do it bird by bird. You don't have to write it all at once. <laughs> right. And it's like, it's like that adage about, you know, eating an elephant one bite at a time. Yep. Um, and you just do it. And it was really interesting. I mean, we wrote the, the first draft of that book inside of six months. And, wow. um, and it just because that was, that was, we set out to do that. And we had a deadline, we promised to deliver it to the publisher. So we had to do it. And, um, you know, you, when you wake up in the morning, and you sit down, and, and you just sit down, and it's your job, like, that's what you do, like you, it's doable. Yeah. A friend of mine, one of the things that prepared me mentally to know that it's possible. A friend of mine um, is a founder of National Novel Writing Month. Are you familiar with National Novel Writing Month? I am not. Sometimes referred to as NaNoWriMo. Hmm. Um, 
And like this was founded, NaNoWriMo was founded like 20 years ago or something like that in, you know, decades before the current trend of shortening everything like homecoming to Hoco and Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse to Romo Fijo. Um, so NaNoWriMo um, was, is my friend Chris, Chris Beatty, who said, I want to write a novel, but I know I'm not going to be able to do it by myself. I'm not going to be able to lock myself away somewhere and just write a novel. So I need certain constraints, right? I need certain conditions, right? And one of the conditions was he needed somebody, some folks to do it with him. Another condition was he needed to know that it wasn't going to take forever. So he gave, so he created, so he created National Novel Writing Month. He declared that November would be National Novel Writing Month. <laughs> this is like from his apartment in Oakland, California. And he, um, and it started out by just getting like, I think it was like seven or eight people. And they would meet every night at this cafe and write for two or three hours. And if you write 1500 words a day for 30 days, you get to something that is a novel, that is novel length about the length of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, right? A short novel. Yeah. And you can, and you can do that, right? Um, you can get to 50,000 words that way. And so that was the plan. And that's what they did. And they, and they, and it was all like quantity, not quality. Yep. Um, and his other, his other phrase, his other like sort of aphorism is no plot, no problem. Just keep <laughs> Just right. Just right. Yeah. And so, so I knew, you know, if Chris could do that, if that, if that worked, then, then it really is just a matter of like sitting down and writing your thousand to 2000 words a day. And, you know, for us, that meant doing a lot of reporting, doing a lot of, you know, I was doing, a, I interviewed like a hundred teachers for that, for that book, transcribed the interviews, edited the transcripts, all of that stuff. I mean, that, that was work, but I knew, I knew what the work was and knew how to do it. And um, the hardest part was finding teach, like, it wasn't, you know, it was 2005 or 2003, we were doing this, right? So really like early internet yeah. or like pre-social media internet yep. all you really had were emails that you hoped you could reach out to somebody and they might forward your email to somebody else and they might reach out to you and say yeah i really want to share my story yep um so it took i mean that part took a while and that was hard to like to source geographically diverse racially diverse to find those 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 stories from all over the country from different kinds of teachers but it was great i mean i mean it was phenomenal but that's how you do it you create the, the table of contents is like your plan. And then you just start figuring out how to chip away at the plan. And then you, and you, you cannot be afraid of revising your plan, right? Because there are going to be times when you get in there and you're like, ah, ah, this chapter doesn't make sense. We need another chapter that does this. And then by the way, we need to do this other thing. So yeah. Bird by bird. Bird by bird. That's it. Exactly. Um, all right. So let's uh, shift gears a little bit for people unfamiliar with the City Club of Cleveland. Tell us about the history of the organization itself <laughs> and then the work that you do uh, in Cleveland. OK, yeah, sure. So the City Club's been around since 1912, founded by a group of young civic leaders in during the progressive era who, you know, coming out, there was a time in Cleveland's history, like the early 1900s, specifically though, like after 1910, it had 10 years of Mayor Tom L. Johnson's administration. And in that period of time between like 1910 and 1920, you see all of these major organizations being founded. There's been an incredible amount of wealth created by people like Rockefeller and Wade and like all these names that you, that you know. And then they started turning their turning their attention, their their energy that had been devoted to capitalist enterprise toward civic enterprise, and they created the Center for Community Solutions, the United Way, the Cleveland Foundation, the Cleveland Orchestra, the City Club of Cleveland, the um, the Cleveland Museum of Art, the Western Reserve Historical Society. Like all of these organizations are created inside of this this time, these, these organizations that we now think of as being the fabric of our community. The City Club, the idea of the City Club came from a graduate student who was at Western Reserve. He'd been a member of the City Club of St. Louis. And the notion of a City Club, there were every municipality that cared about rooting out graft and corruption had a City Club. It was a place where people who cared about the community could come together and find fellowship in their like civic nerdiness. And, um, and regardless of whether they were like on the right or the left or, or, or anything, right? It was just a, um, 
a place where people could could come together and talk about the issues and maybe find solutions to them. So uh, this graduate student, uh, Mayo Fessler, um, had been a member of the City Club of St. Louis, and he brings the idea to one of his professors, Augustus Hatton, who says, oh, what a great idea. Let's talk to these guys. I know a bunch of guys downtown who would be really interested in this. So he starts shopping the idea around and convening these meetings with people like Newton D. Baker and Mayor Johnson and judges and newspapermen and business leaders and so forth. And the, he, there's a lot of momentum around this idea. So in October of 1912, they have a meeting and they, um, and they have this, the guy come from the City Club of St. Louis to sort of say, hey, hey here's how it works. And, um, and then they say, all right, well, let's, do we want to do this? The answer seems to be yes. So they sell that day 70 $10 shares in the City Club. And with like $700, they kickstart the City Club in 1912. And the idea is $700 in 1912. I know that's That's not bad. bad. Right. Yeah. And $10 shares, right. That would be like, I don't know, $500 today or something like that. But you know, you know, you can, you know, but it's, it's how you get stuff started. Right. And so, and they created this place where, um, where they would, it was a social club with a civic purpose. People would come together to, um, to meet regularly. They would, they would have lunch there and things like that. And then they would also have speakers once a week. And, you know, and back then once a week meant like once a week during the season. So like September to May or something like that, because people went away for the summers and they would meet on Saturdays for the speakers. Well, you fat, over, the, over the ensuing century, um, they moved the Saturday meetings to Fridays. And then eventually we start doing programs on more days than, than just Fridays. And today we do 120 programs a year for the benefit of the community. Wow. Um, during the Cleveland mayoral race, the you know there were two primary debates and a general election debate that were televised. Those were the debates that the city club convened. Wow. Um, the last time Barack Obama spoke in Cleveland, he spoke at a city club of Cleveland event. Um, we've hosted sitting U.S. presidents, we've hosted visiting heads of state, and we've hosted community activists. Um, and you know we have conversations about. Uh, about education, the economy, politics, policy, the environment, um, the the future of Lake Erie, everything that matters to the city of Cleveland and to the to the broader greater Cleveland community, we're having a conversation about it at the city club. Um, so today I just had a lunch, um, I, our director of programming and I had lunch with two city club members who are volunteers who run our debate committee. And we are planning out what debates we're gonna do next year because we have all these statewide races, right? And some of them are very important when you think about the future of democracy and the future of democratic participation. So the secretary of state, the uh, attorney general, the governor, the lieutenant governor, all of that stuff, right? All that's happening next year. We have a Senate race as well next year. Um, and you know there will be, when there are debates in Cleveland, um, chances are the city club will be involved if not the only organization involved. Um, in convening these things. We, um, we have roughly right now somewhere between 800 and 900 members. We're a member-supported organization. Um, so we have money from you know, philanthropy and corporate donations as well. But members, those, those 800 to 900 members are probably the most important dollars that support the work that we do. And, um, and members also drive, our, our drive the conversations. They are making... Um, suggestions, speaker suggestions all the time. They help to make the programs happen. And every program, I should say, is an hour in length. And the hallmark of every program is that in the second half, questions come from the audience. Questions are always coming from the audience. So what's what's amazing, I mean, it's like in some ways, oh, it's a speaker series or blah, blah, blah. This is actually what like democracy, one of the things that democracy looks like, right? Democracy looks like a a forum devoted to freedom of speech in the community where anybody for the price of lunch or even, you know, with a free ticket that you that you managed to get. And it's not that hard to find yourself a free ticket to the city club. Um, you get to be in the room with somebody who wants to be president. Right. Or wants to run the state or has a big idea or is a visiting author. And you can ask them a question. You can raise your hand and be the next person who asks them a question, and that question might change the course of the conversation. 
it might it might have an impact and and help us see things in a new light. And that happens all the time when the questions from our community, from our very well-informed and deeply engaged community, change the course of the conversation. Active engagement, so important. Yeah. Um, so with you guys, I mean, 20, 2020 and, and this year had to just kind of rock your entire structure. I mean, you guys are an in-person yeah. uh, organization that facilitates conversations peer-to-peer. -peer. Yeah. So how did you guys pivot? What did it look like? It, um, well, it's, I mean, the first thing it looked like is like er erasing the calendar, right? So we had like, you know, we had at any given moment, pre-COVID, we would have, you know, programs planned out for the next three to six months. And we just wiped that out entirely and then started, you know, and, and at the time, you remember March 2020, the only thing people wanted to talk about was COVID. And the only thing anybody needed to talk about, the only thing we wanted to, we, it was all COVID all the time. It was like policy around, it was like what it is, how it works, how to protect yourself. And then like, what's the policy response? How are we going to get through this? What's the impact on the economy? So, you know, where do we get, when's the vaccine going to come? All of that stuff, right? And um, so we changed the content very quickly. And then, and we just as quickly had to shift to digital, to a digital platform. I mean, it's amazing. You and I are having this conversation on Zoom right now. And, um, and you know, three years ago, if you'd sent me a Zoom link, I would have been like, what, what is this? What is this? <laughs> right? This guy, want, this guy wants to talk to me on video? Just call myself. video? Phone. What the hell? <laughs> like, can't we just, what? Um, and so it, you know, so we started out on Zoom, you know, doing our forums on Zoom and inviting people to these giant Zoom calls. And we got Zoom bombed like really bad. Do you remember how bad people got Zoom bombed? Like we got Zoom bombed really bad. The only thing it was, it was all pornography and very explicit pornography, but we didn't get any of the hate speech. Some people got Zoom bombed with hate speech and, you know, and, and real like awful kinds of, yeah. you know, aggressive things. This was just like people having fun and, you know, clowning kind of, yeah. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> like, it's fine. We actually, so after that experience, we found another platform. We started using a platform called StreamYard, which allows us to broadcast, you know, send, send what we're doing through YouTube, live stream it on our webpage. All of that was a lot, made a lot more sense for what we were trying to do. And we also learned a whole lot about like locking down security on Zoom calls. Yeah. Um, and, but at the time, nobody knew anything about that. No. So we actually- Everything was open-ended. Then they then oh, yeah. have passwords and closed link. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, the whole thing. It was crazy. So, so we wound up using that, using our experience to provide like a kind of learning for the whole community. We made the best, you know, made a little lemonade out of those lemons and, yep. and actually people seem to really appreciate that. Um, but, you know, fully a third of our revenue, anywhere from 25 to 30% of our revenue would come or, and a third of our earned revenue for sure, or more would come from ticket sales to live events. Yep. So we didn't have that. So our immediately, like our revenue, like our revenue projections were all off. Like we had to redo all of that. And then honestly, those first couple of months, I mean, those were existential moments yep. for every organization before they came out with the paycheck protection program before, you know, we knew we, nobody knew how we were going to make it through. No. And no. So, basically you know, until that, I, I don't think we really knew. And I, I was living in New York at the time. Uh -huh. I don't think we really knew we were going to survive until late May. Oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. think, I think, well, first of all, all of March. Yeah, that's gone. Yeah. All of April. And then I yeah. can't remember when in May that we knew that we found out, hey, we are, we are going to receive the PPP. Um, right. But it was, it was down to the final hour, you know, where it was yeah. like next week we're, we're laying people off or we're getting uh -huh. a loan. And that was it. Exactly. Yeah. And I and like right, I gotta remember the stress of like calling our banker and trying to figure out like, hey, are we gonna be able to get into this round? Because you remember that first round they ran oh, out. It was insane. It was, like, it was so it was insane. insane. And so anyway, um, but we within it, you know, by the time we get to that moment, we had figured out, okay, like you have to figure out all sorts of things. Like how do you show up for your external stakeholders? How do you show up for the community? And how do you show up as an organization internally for one another? And, um, but we kind of, we began to get a sense of what both of those things were gonna look like. And then we just started creating programming, just continued to create more and more programming 
trying to figure out what does our community want to be talking about right now? What, what is the conversation that our community needs right now? And so you go back and look through those archives, those times, like you'll see like program about mental health during amidst the, pan amidst the pandemic. Um, you know, by the time we got to the end of May, we thought people are going to want to start to talk. It feels like people want to talk about other things, about non-COVID things. And then George Floyd was murdered. And then that those issues, that moment, those all of those issues, they, they took over the, the entire dialogue that every community across the country was having. And those are the conversations that we were having too for, for the next couple of months from so many different angles. Um, and, you know, but eventually, I mean, it's crazy, right? Like now we're here, December 21, and um, thinking back to, you know, this is like fully 20 months, 21 months, right? into this pandemic, right? Like this time a year ago, we were like, oh, I thought we'd be through this already, right? And doesn't, here we are. So, sometimes <laughs> I talk to people and 2021 almost seems weirder than 2020 was because yeah. at least 2020, it was, it was something the whole world was going through. Everything was new. There was this sense of pure shutdown, right? For at mm -hmm. least three to four weeks, probably a month, depending yeah. on where you live. Right. Um, and it almost, it almost, seemed now that i look back on it it almost seemed more manageable in 2020 sometimes than it did in 2021 i i agree i, I don't know but I but it, but it almost was like I mean, what to 2020 your point, 2020 was the year like we like the we all thought like the world was gonna like could collapse 100%. i mean democracy was on the brink right you had like in the midst of you know like i don't know how you spend every day but i remember like oh. every day every morning looking at COVID numbers, right? And there were certain routines that I built up to just kind of manage, like just, you know, and like you're working from home, you're stuck in your sweatpants, you're fighting with your kids over who's got like Wi-Fi bandwidth. And um, and then and amidst all of that, all of that stress, you had the race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And it was, you know, and the first part of the year too, right? You had all the Democrats like trying to figure out who's going to be, you know, who, yeah. who, who it would be until it was finally Biden. And then you had this race between like, I mean, um, you know, America's grandpa and America's like crazy ass uncle, yeah. right? Like that's what it was. It's a good way to put it. It's a very and good like, way to put it. And, and it was, um, I mean... God, and the strife and everything and the weird, and it really did feel like two totally different nations. Two yeah. to oh. It's hard. I know that we still, we're, we're still there in some ways. Like there's still a lot of people who are still kind of relitigating that in their mind and they're hanging on to all of that. But it's, it is hard to remember just how divisive that moment was. Oh my and goodness. then that the culmination in January 6th. Yeah. Which was just like, it was so weird. I mean, that was, was that, that was that, surreal. That honestly, I mean, that that I mean, it was a cap of probably the four and a half craziest years. Yeah, I, I don't want to say I'm 32. So what am, I can only speak for my 32 years. But yeah, of I mean, my like, life, besides 9-11, this was it. I mean, this was absolutely insane to watch. It was surreal. And I agree with you. There was this point there a couple points i would say in 2020 and then ending in january 6 where the inner thought of like i don't know if we will make it right like i don't know right. what america will look like in the next six months right. i mean right. it was so i agree with you yeah i agree 2020 was great i think from the mindset of like 2021 i just felt like people were just fatigued about it so yeah. people was eventually i think just said I, they just chose individually. I'm done. I'm not, right. you know, now again, mm -hmm. I'm not wearing a mask or I'm going to, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you're saying, yeah. but they individually, cause in 2020, you couldn't say that you couldn't. Right. But in, right. They, they just kind of gave up. They're just like, you know yeah. what? <laughs> I'm going to dinner or I'm yeah. traveling or, you know, whatever it was. So it just, yeah. that almost felt crazy to manage too, because it was like, well, who's doing what you go to this state, you're wearing oh, masks, yeah. you go here. Oh, yeah. You can do whatever you want. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is bizarre. The whole thing, and it, <laughs> and that we're still here. We're still in it. Yeah. Right. 
like yeah. nothing, things aren't changing. Like, I mean, things are changing. They're shifting a little bit here and there, but you know, we got, we went for the city club. We went for, um, I guess about 15 or 16 months without doing an in-person program. Wow. Everything was virtual. And then we finally got to, you remember in the summer, last summer, it sort of felt like, okay, this might be dying down. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of July, we're like, okay, we're going to start doing in-person programs. And um, it was the right decision. And then in October, we instituted a vaccine mandate for our programs for, you know, attendance like Playhouse Square and, and Severance, um, you know, and other places and had the happy dog too, right? Every, they've all got these, these vaccine mandates. And, um, you know, and we got to the point, and I remember having a conversation with Gina Vernacci over at Playhouse Square about it. And she's like, well, this whole thing was like, in retrospect, it's a lot easier to turn everything off than it is to turn it back on again. Hmm. You know, just from an operational standpoint. Yep. You know, you just sort of say, oh, everything's canceled and people stop coming. Right. Yep. But if you say, hey, we're open again. No, we're open again. Like, right. Like you can't, it's hard to get people to come back. Yeah. And that takes time. So yep. we've been like slowly building, you know, building audience, building crowd again. Yep. Um, and still there's some people who are, you know, I'm going to watch it online. I'm just fine doing that, you know? Yep. But for me, like I, I need to see people in person. Yeah. Like I need, I need that. I, I need that that human face-to-face, -face, even mask, like that face-to-face -face can reach out and like, and, you know, and, and like grab you by the shoulders and like, and, and see your eyes. Like I, that's something that I really need. Um, and I think a lot, there are a lot of people, I mean, again, fundamentally human kind of thing, only connect, right. Just to come back to that for a second. Sometimes you need to be in somebody's physical presence. Yeah. hundred um, percent. So yeah. let's talk about 2022. What does that look like in terms of events, speakers, content? What are you guys focusing on? And then are there specific things? I know you mentioned, obviously, all the elections, too, um, wow. happening across the state. But are there any issues specifically to Cleveland that you guys are focusing on? This is, I mean, it's such an exciting time for our city because there's this tremendous transition in leadership that's happening. You're, you know, not only in the big offices like the mayor of Cleveland and um, and county executive, um, where you feel like it's inevitable that these these things are going to the next generation. Like, interestingly, the, I mean, the office of mayor in the city of Cleveland just skipped Generation X, right? It went from boomer to millennial. Yep. Right. My generation, it's your generation's turn. My generation just got, just, you know, skipped in yep. that office. But the same thing also happened to the Gund Foundation. You know, it's one of the biggest the foundations in, a, in the nation, certainly yep. one of the largest private foundations in Ohio, and just went from boomer to millennial hmm. with, uh, you know, with Tony Richardson as the incoming president there. He's almost 40 years old or something like that, right? Yeah. It's super exciting. Yep. And so... Um, and then you have like leaders who have been, in spite of kind of the stagnation around them, you have leaders like Brian Zimmerman at the Metro Parks, who have just been like changing our like physical landscape and really like hugely improving the city and, and, the, and the region. And it just feels that with our, with the change in leadership, the widespread awareness of the importance of focusing on racial equity and working towards racial equity yep. with the changing understanding of what our criminal justice system is and how it can work and how we can make it more just and more fair um, with the, the kind of changing understanding and, and more nuanced understanding of what's happening, what, what the social determinants of health are that are holding people back. And similarly, like the social determinants of economic opportunity that are holding people back things feel like, like we could really shift how we deal with problems, how we solve problems in our community. Um, when we get, and there's like, by the way, a billion dollars in federal money that is being spent inside of Cuyahoga County right now or available inside of Cuyahoga County to solve some of these problems thanks to the American Rescue Plan Act. I, I'm pretty excited. So all of that stuff, that's the stuff we're gonna be talking about a lot. 
Yep. Whether it's workforce development or economic development, education, innovation, healthcare reform, whatever it is, like criminal justice reform, like those are the issues that we're going to be talking about a lot. Have you heard more about the Amtrak between the three C's of Ohio? Because I saw that that may have been green lighted. No, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, there's like some major public transit things that might happen. Yeah. That would be, you know, the inner city kind of things. Like people also talk about the hyperloop. All of that stuff, I will believe it when I see it. Those are very expensive modes of transportation to build. Um, and if they happen, that'll be absolutely wonderful. Um, but there are a lot of things. I mean, we can't, there are a lot of things standing in the way of those kinds of projects. Right now, we can't even put a single wind turbine on the lake right, because of regulations in our state are holding back that project that has been, people have been working on that for, I think, about 15 years now, and they haven't been able to, to do this. And I don't, I, I don't know why our people in our state, legislators in our state and regulators or whomever are so opposed to it. The transition to cleaner energy is not an, a weather question, it, like a whether or not to do it question. It's, a, it's inevitable. It's how yep. fast are we going to do it at this point? Um, so so those, those are interesting. I think there's, there's lower hanging fruit to, to get at in terms of making our city more livable and making public transit work better for more people and making transit generally more modes of transit, right? I mean, you've lived in New York City you know what kind of people-centered things have happened there in the past decade to transform Times Square from like the worst, most dangerous intersection on the planet to like a pedestrian zone, right? Yeah. Or to create uh, access along the Hudson River and the and the southern tip of the island so that you can you can ride your bike or you can walk or you can run or you can rollerblade or whatever without fearing for your life. Um, shutting down Central Park on, you know, every weekend so that people can actually enjoy it and not worry about taxi cabs hitting them, right? Like that sort of stuff, that's the low-hanging fruit that has never been harvested in Cleveland. Um, we have overbuilt roads, right, that are wider than they need to be, um, you know, six-lane boulevards that are carrying one lane's worth of, of automobile traffic. We could be expanding bike access and creating these extraordinary uh, corridors for, you know, connectivity for, for pedestrian and two-wheeled connectivity with scooters and electric bikes and so forth. Um, that's the kind of thing that I think we're probably going to start seeing, which ultimately is good for everybody, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's just a more small d democratic mode of doing, of doing street development so that more people have access to, to wherever they need to go. Yep. Um, even though Times Square is a little bit more walkable, don't go. Just skip it. No, it's I'm no, no. <laughs> like the pictures. I mean, you look at those. We had Jeanette Jeanette uh, Sadie Khan, who was Mayor Bloomberg's um, Mayor Bloomberg's like I, I forget what her title was, but she is the person who shut down Times Square and put out the cafe tables, hmm. right? And like you look, you just take you know two side by side pictures from the same location. You look, you're like, holy cow, crazy, right? Crazy, you know, and. Nobody loses in that scenario. There's nobody. I mean, the, so you traffic over on tenth on tenth Avenue or Eighth Avenue or whatever. It's just like it's the same thing. It doesn't matter. You don't need. You didn't need to go right there. Yeah. We have and like we have so little traffic here. It's insane. Oh no, I know. I tell people all the time. I know. I always joke like Jobs Ohio has this massive marketing and advertising campaign to try and attract uh, people from the coasts. You know, the expensive right. cities and all that stuff. And I all I tell them all the time is just say no traffic. You can get yeah. anywhere in 20 minutes, anywhere yeah. in 20 minutes. And no matter the time, it's 8 a.m., right. 5.30 p.m. If I leave my house right now, it's 5.50. I can yeah. get anywhere in Columbus in 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. It's like, that's it. Hard yeah. stop. That's the selling point. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> you don't need to say anything else. Yeah. yeah. We can get to housing later and all the cool yeah. stuff. You know, it's. Did, yeah. you, did you grow up here? I grew up in Connecticut. My wife uh -huh. grew up in Columbus, so her family's okay. here and then we moved back. But um, uh -huh. yeah, I, I always tell people, it's like, you don't understand. Like, and, and then when you talk to people from Ohio, mm -hmm. they, you know, they'll look at 5, 530 traffic where mm -hmm. there's, just, there's just more cars on the road, but you're going 65 miles an hour. It's like, no, no, right. no. Traffic means you have no hope. 
you know, it's dead. Yeah, stop. traffic's like you're stuck on the highway. <laughs> it's over on 580 or 880. That was my nemesis in California, yeah. and it's it's going to take you 30 minutes to go two miles. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay, so let's go to just the the overall concept of free speech, which is obviously kind sure. of the, the mission statement and the belief behind the city club. But how yeah. have you conditioned yourself to accept free speech in your forum, especially when you may not agree with it or, and you know, cause I think everyone can not agree with something and be like, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, that's a good opinion. But what if it's pure ignorance, let's say, or what if it's, it, if it's a truly like, like not necessarily a good rooted question, you know, when, when that happens or what, what happens in those environments when those questions get asked? Well, I mean, there's, there are a few moments that have tested my commitment to freedom of speech. And, you know, like, I mean, in general, and what I feel, what I believe is that like, we, a truly inclusive community like an acute, a community that will thrive has to be truly inclusive, right? We have to, and, and for democracy to work, we have to believe in it, right? And we have to believe in the power of ideas and the power of persuasion. Now, the reality is, is that not even politicians believe in that anymore. I don't know if they ever did. Mostly yeah. politics is about power and about about consolidating power and about trying to box out the other guy and yep. um, and the other party, but still at its heart, I mean, like policy making is about ideas and figuring out the best ideas and the best solutions to the to problems. And so you have to hear from people. You have to li- you have to listen and you have to think about it. And you know, like the extremes are useful because they kind of lay out the boundaries of the of what's possible right the Overton window right here's you know somewhere between like you know I don't know say Kevin McCarthy and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez right it's like right and so and so we're in the middle right we're somewhere you know we wind up at Joe Manchin and um and that's okay right for me like that's that I'm really interested in that because I'm interested in hearing in like in in like for me personally I'm interested in, in hearing all of these different ideas. Yep. Um, people who who are like huge fans of the squad or huge fans of Trump or whatever it is, right? They're and I've been in those shoes, right? I voted for Ralph Nader. I voted for Ralph Nader. I also voted for John Kasich. I mean, like I've I've done yep. I've, I've had a lot of different opinions. And, um, and I know, I know that feeling of like, no, this is the right way. We have to do this. I know what it feels like to be a strident believer, a true believer in your point of view. <clears throat> but I know that the reality is, is that like our government exists in this, like, this is the structure of our government and politics is the, is the tool by which we have chosen to govern, Right democratic politics, small d democratic politics is the tool by which as a nation we've chosen to govern ourselves. And what that tool is designed to do is to find compromise, right? And it's designed to not swing too far to the left or right. So um, so I see that the work that we do is about, particularly when it comes to politics and politicians, is about giving them a venue to float ideas, to, con- to really connect authentically with their constituents and with the people they either do serve or want to serve and to get their reaction, to hear their questions. There aren't too many places in America where you could, like I said before, where you can be in that room, right? There's a lot of ways to get into that room that room otherwise by making a political contribution, right? But you have to know somebody, right? You have to be connected. But for an ordinary person to be able to be in that room and provide that feedback and ask that question, it only happens at the city club. Now, there are times when we've invited people whose views may be objectionable, whose views some people will definitely find objectionable. But I, I kind of believe, like a lot of people who are, believe in freedom of speech, that that's okay. They're entitled to those ideas. Those, those ideas are not going to hurt me. Those ideas are not going to infect me, right? <laughs> they may challenge me. They may... They may um, 
they may invite my own my interrogation, but they're just ideas, right? And they're not going to harm me. There's that speech, whether it's Corey Lewandowski or Elon Pape or um, or whomever, right? Or from the right or the left, it's okay. Like it's just just part of the dialogue. Now, now that said, there are some, you know, I think we've we're in a different era now where that kind of everything's okay, freedom of speech is um, there was a moment many like 10, 20 years ago where the city club issued an invitation to David Duke. Wow. And he ultimately declined the invitation because I think he found out that he would be pretty much roasted at the city club that there's like a, a you know, there's a and a with the audience, it's unfiltered. And he realized like somebody's going to ask me questions that are just that I, I don't want to answer. So he declined the invitation. We would not, if David Duke is still around, still doing the same asinine BS, you know, racist, white supremacist BS that he's been doing, we would not invite him today. And we would not invite any of those like far right, alt right, you know, tiki torch carrying uh, you know, jackholes, like, I'm sorry, yep. I just, but no, I mean, no, like, no. Right there we're not going to do yeah, it yeah. because at the, I think at the time when that invitation was issued to David Duke, it was sort of like, let's use David Duke to show just how tolerant we are hmm. today. Like, I think that was the idea. Got it. Today, it wasn't that like, there's like a group of people who are like, I would really love to hear David Duke. It's more yeah. like, <laughs> I want to invite David Duke so we can unmask him as being a total fraud. Yeah. Um, today, like you couldn't pay me a million dollars to bring Richard Spencer to the city club. There's just yeah. no way we do it yeah. Um, yeah. because we feel that we, we do have a responsibility to draw a line at hate speech. And we do have a responsibility to not offer the platform to people who would seek to destroy democracy. Yeah. Um, to people who do not stand for the same values and principles of inclusion and fairness and justice and equity that we stand for. Yep. Yeah, um, you can be you can be as strong in your beliefs as you want. And I think this is what you're getting at. Right. Like whether it's left or right, not too far right or maybe not too far right, whether it's right or left. If you're not inciting violence if you're not bringing other people down if it doesn't come from this kind of like fear-based evil rooted thought process where whatever you're pitching if it's raising this building it's tearing this one down like yeah well we're not just we're just not going to feature you because the whole point going back to what you originally started saying is yeah we want people who accept other people's points of view we want people that accept other people's questions, right? Like you can't just come and we're say, this is we're it. We're interested in the dialogue. We're yeah. interested in the, in the discourse. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Like we had Corey Lewandowski several years ago in 2016, 2017 or something. It was 2017, I think he came and he had, you know, been the campaign director for a, a shockingly successful presidential campaign, right? That everybody said was going to fail and, and it didn't. So he was offered to us. And I said, yeah, we should totally have him because, um, because, you know, if he'd been uh, George Bush's campaign director, we would have said, yes, sure. And like, may not like Donald Trump, but he's the president. This guy somehow managed to execute a strategy that led to his victory. So let's hear it. I mean, well, I, I will still say it's the greatest marketing campaign in the history of marketing. Well, campaign. Yeah, yeah it, but it was, a, it was a, I, I don't know if I'd agree with that. I think he had, he came in with some baked in advantages in that your entire life, Donald Trump was on magazine covers your entire life. But every but time the, you went to the supermarket, he was probably on a, on a cover of a magazine. But, right? but okay. And so then, and then for like most of your life for, for at least two thirds of your life, he had been uh, on TV on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah. A hundred percent. Was there. And, um, and so like he, he had some built-in advantages that brought in this electorate, this, this group of voters who had not been involved at all, right? And so, that, so he had some built-in advantages back in 2016. And yeah, it was also a great marketing campaign. Yeah, and the only reason I say that, that it, it 
it's so crazy because I think people that had any sort of background information about him knew who he really was. And I always say this guy now, again, I don't want to get too far into it, but I, this guy is the definition of elite. He was, he was born and raised in New York. He came from riches. So how he convinced people to vote against their own interests, to vote for someone who now, again, back to your point earlier, like politicians are politicians. Like I don't really believe any of them truly Mm -hmm. care, but here we are. He definitely doesn't. And how he did that. That's why I always say, this is like the greatest campaign. Like, how did he do this? This is amazing. These people who make $30,000 a year voting for quote unquote on paper billionaire. It's like, this makes no sense. I know. I know. No, you're absolutely right. But Lewandowski, in the end, what I was going to say is that he was it was a terrible speech. Wow. It was he he spoke. He told a few like he told like story. From the campaign trail. Right. It was there was no there was no. There, I'm sorry. My Internet is is like stopping. You're, on, yeah, you're back know, now. Yeah. Yep. OK. There was no strategy. There was no. um philosophy there was no defense of trumpism it was stories from the campaign trail and then during the q a he insulted the audience wow there were like lifelong republicans in the audience people stand-up people people who've been elected officials and mayors of of suburbs and so forth who asked questions and he um really reasonable questions like i'm a lifelong republican i'm a little concerned this guy doesn't seem you know tell me why i shouldn't be concerned and he said, you know what I'm concerned about? I'm concerned about, you know, the Senate Republicans not getting in line behind our president. I'm concerned about, you know, all of this. And it was like, and then a couple of people were like, no, could you a- answer that question? Because it's a legit question. It's what a lot of Republicans and, you know, Americans generally were worried about. And he wouldn't. He's like, no, I'm going to say what I want to say because I've got the podium now. And that's that's how it works. And it was like truly insulting to the audience. And, um, and it's... And, and but I still don't regret that because that reveal it was revelatory, right? Yep. Yep. The guy yep. had earned his shot. He'd earned his his position. He'd earned the chance to do that. He did it and revealed himself to be kind of a fraud. Yep. So okay, there yep. you go. Can't get mad at you guys. <laughs> you can get mad at him. But you can't, you know no, what I mean? You provided people got really mad at people got really mad at us and got mad at me in particular. Why? And yeah, oh yeah. I had to, I spent like a week before the event trying to, you know, having to defend myself against like city club members who were who were mad that he'd been given the platform, other people in the community who were mad that he'd been given the platform. I was on the radio, the radio show that I used to host talking about it. It was hilarious. And it was a sold out program. It was very financially successful for the city club. And we got to write, you know, like an op-ed about it and all of that stuff. And like, and in the end, Lewandowski hung himself. So it's fine. Yep. Um, Dan, this has been uh, fantastic. Usually I will tell you these go about 20, 25 minutes and we are pretty much well over an hour. So we got to get you out of here. This was unbelievable. Um, But we will get you out of here on this easiest question of the night. Um, highlight some local area Cleveland restaurants. What are your go-to dinner, lunch, breakfast spots, whatever you got? My One of my favorite spots is Doug Katz's restaurant, Zug, okay. which is a Israeli-inspired uh, cuisine. Doug is just, um, he's just the nicest guy. He's a truly, you know, restaurants are full of people who shout and like throw things at walls <laughs> and things like that. And um Doug is just, a, he's a great businessman. He's a truly nice guy. You go to eat there and he comes out and says hello and visits with you a little bit. And, um, and he's catered a couple of parties that we've, that we've thrown. And I just really like Doug. I love his food. And, um, and I think, I think he's just fantastic. Awesome. I, I really do. Yeah. And where is that east side, west Zug, side? Zug is on the east side at Cedar okay. Hill um, and right across the street from Dave's supermarket. Um, there's another, there's a little um, cafe right around the corner there, a bakery and cafe called Luna, which Got is it. also one of my favorite spots. Awesome. All yeah. right. Well, Dan, listen, we really appreciate you coming on. This has been fantastic. Thank and, you for uh, having me. I really yeah, enjoyed next, it. 
next time I'm in Cleveland, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll grab coffee or lunch and, uh, and we'll have you on again here soon too. So this 100%. is hundred percent. And, and if you, next time you're in Cleveland, if we got a city club forum happening, let me know and you can be our guest. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. I'll talk with you soon. Okay. Take care. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.